0: Father, thank you for your good care and oversight of your church and your people in last week and in every week, Father. Those of us who have the privilege to serve in the body of Christ, Father, we're tempted at times to see ourselves as the key, as the center of the work that is done in this place. And you are good and right to show us that it does not depend on us. That your church is entirely and always under your control and stewardship. That you have more than all that is needed to raise up men and women in this body or elsewhere. To provide for the needs, the spiritual needs that are here. That you will never leave your church, Father, without the things it needs. And that though it may take a different form than we expect and things may not go as we would like. All the better, Father, for your ways are not our ways. I thank you that I was delivered safely into places where I spoke and traveled and also to be delivered back here safely. And I thank you for the the service and the the volunteer efforts of so many as they contribute each in their own gifts to the glorification of your name and to the edification of the saints. And, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the mysteries that it holds. Thank you for the depths in which we can find truth. and see it apply in our life. Thank you, Father, for the conviction and for the encouragement. And thank you, Father, that we had the will and the strength and the discipline to be here, to be here and to be everywhere you call us during the week. We thank you for these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, it has been at least a little while we had Easter, then we had a time when I was gone. And so it's been three weeks since we were last in the book of Genesis and chapter 25. How about a little short review? Just to get our mind back around what we were studying in our last installment, Abraham and his story had come to an end in the story of Genesis. He had died. He was buried with his wife, Sarah, and his life up until that moment was the life we followed because it was in Abraham that the promises of God were being carried forward. It was he that received God's blessing. Though we know the true fulfillment of all of those promises and all of those blessings won't come for Abraham until he's resurrected and living again on earth in the kingdom. Nevertheless, it was important to note God had selected one man in all the earth and established his covenant with that man and he was moving his plan forward in this man's life. But then his death introduced a new question for us, or it should have in the text, an important question, and it's one Moses is going to address really throughout the whole second half of the book of Genesis. And that question is, what becomes of God's promises when the man he's spoken them to dies. How is God moving them forward? Remember, God said when he spoke to Abraham in the first place that he was giving Abraham blessing and promises, not only to him, but also to his descendants. Descendants. But the promises, and in particular one aspect of the promise, that being that there would be a seed, a Messiah, who would come and bless the whole world, these promises, by their very nature, are limited to single individuals. Two people, two different brothers, for example, cannot, by definition, carry a promise to produce the Messiah. So it becomes a point of question of where does this promise, this blessing that God has spoken, where does it go next? And how is it determined? Who gets to decide where this promise goes? How will God move this forward in the lives of men? Well, Moses begins to trace this movement and the question of how it moves forward in the book of Genesis. And he's going to use a common term to describe all of those promises and the right to carry those promises. And the term he's going to begin to use is birthright, birthright. So we would start to ask, who has the birthright? Now, the the term birthright, it's a position of honor among families in this culture and in this day, the times of the Bible that we're talking about. It refers to the one who stands to have the greater inheritance from their father. The birthright entitled a person to obtain literally a double portion of whatever the inheritance would be within a family. And the way they calculated that was actually very simple. For example, if there were six sons in a family, then the father's inheritance would be divided seven ways, not six. And the oldest son got two portions which is then double what his brothers got. That's how the family inheritance would be divided and how the birthright would change the inheritance of the oldest. Now, ordinarily, the firstborn male of a family automatically receives the birthright. That was custom. In fact, it was all but law in the way that it was practiced. Only if that first son was disqualified in some way would it transfer to another child. And the one who held the right to decide... the the person who determined whether or not the oldest son could keep the birthright was the father himself. So the father in the culture held all the power to decide who would receive the birthright. But unless there was some reason to disqualify the oldest, it would always go to the oldest. That is the tradition. That's the cultural view. But in this case, we're talking about something much greater than simply the monetary inheritance of the father. We're talking about inheriting promises and blessings that are supernatural, that are within God's control, God's promises, God's blessing. And so when it comes to the blessing God spoke to Abraham, it will be God himself who will determine who may receive those promises in the succeeding generations. Men will not make that decision. It is God's alone, for it is his promise, it is his blessing. Not even the patriarch himself can make a decision concerning who will receive the promises of God. You remember this already in the story of Abraham, don't you? Remember, Abraham had Ishmael first. And when God announces to Abraham that it won't be Ishmael that receives his promises, it will be Isaac, the child of promise, he called him. It was Abraham who initially responded by saying, Oh, no, may Ishmael be before you? It was Abraham's intention to follow the custom, to follow the culture. And so his every expectation was that Ishmael would receive all of God's promises and blessings. But what did God say back to Abraham? Flatly, no, it shall be Isaac who inherits. So now we go to following Abraham's death, Moses moving forward in the text. I want to back up three verses just to chapter 25, verse 16. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria, he settled in defiance of all his relatives. As I mentioned, we read these before, but let's reconsider for just a moment why Ishmael is being addressed here at all. The purpose, in other words, for this passage. Between Abraham's death and then later the life of Isaac, we put aside or put to an end Ishmael's story once and for all in the text so that we can clearly see that where God is now going to move in the lives of men is through the family of Isaac and not through the family of Ishmael, putting an end to his story, a kind of footnote, if you will, to his life story. The most important piece of what I read, really, besides the ominous sign that his family settled to the east, to the east, which, of course, is a clear indication of where His heart is, as a symbol in scripture, it's a symbol of those who are opposed to God, those who are unregenerate, unbelievers in other words. But the more important footnote is in verse 18, he lived in defiance of all his relatives. I think many of us know relatives like this. That's not to say that they are all unbelievers, but we certainly understand what it means to be in defiance. There's a couple who was driving down a country road for several miles and they end up crossing words, having a bit of an argument. Something that caused each of them to be stubborn in their position, not wanting to give and yield to the other. And as they were driving now in silence, the husband looks out the window and notices in the country a barnyard of mules and goats and pigs. And so the husband saw an opportunity and he he speaks to his wife sarcastically. Are those relatives of yours? And his wife glances over and then looks down and says, Yep, (laughs) in-laws. Yeah, that's so close to the truth. It's not as funny as (laughs) I thought it would be. In Ishmael's case, the statement is a specific reference. It is a reference to the fulfillment of God's promises to Hagar. Remember at the well when he encountered her as she fled with the young boy? And he told her at the time that Ishmael was to grow up and not die in the desert. But as he grew, he would become, in the phrase of Scripture, a wild ass of a man. Stubborn like a donkey, in other words. Obstinate, unruly. In fact, some donkeys are just plain mean. Most of them, I think, are actually born that way. And he would therefore be inclined against Isaac and Isaac's family. And this isn't just something temporary to the life of Ishmael and Isaac. This would become a perpetual thing. It's a perpetual fact that the family line of Ishmael will be adversaries to the family line of Isaac. And God intended it that way. He intends to use this adversarial relationship for his own good purposes over time and through the history of Israel, which is beyond the scope of our study this morning. The point is that Ishmael's life, though it comes to an end here in scripture from the standpoint of God's promises and God's blessing, his reality, his existence is still a factor in the life of Israel and God's plans for that nation. That Abraham's sin has a consequence that carries on much longer than his own life. Now, with that having been settled, though, Moses moves to the story of Isaac and puts him squarely in focus, and he will remain in focus now for a number of chapters, as you would expect. So chapter 25, verse 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren and the Lord answered him and Rebekah his wife, conceived. Well, we obviously remember the details of Isaac and Rebecca's marriage, the, the way they met and so on. But now we learn something very surprising about that marriage. We find out that Isaac and Rebecca so far have been unable to have children, like father, like son, right? Well, actually, to be more accurate, like mother, like wife, because It wasn't Abraham who could not have children. Hagar proved that. The problem was Sarah. Sarah was prevented by God's hand to have children until an appointed day. And now we're told Rebecca is barren as well. Now, that situation seems like way too much of a coincidence to be called a coincidence, doesn't it? In fact, as Christians, we know there is no such thing as a coincidence. I love the phrase God incidence. That's what this is. It's a God incidence. As Christians who read our Bibles, we know that God has a plan for everything and everything that happens is under his authority. Furthermore, we know from what he's already said in his word that God intends to bring the seed promise that he gave to Abraham through the line of Isaac and his descendants. You could go back to Genesis seventeen nineteen and see that very statement from God himself, that it would be through Isaac's descendants that the promises will be seen. So if God has already pronounced that Isaac will have descendants, if Isaac is the chosen child, don't you see the big question that this whole situation begs? Why does God give Isaac a wife who's barren? It seems completely counter to his purpose, doesn't it? Well, you get the answer in the rest of the verse. After 20 years of childless marriage, and you'll find out here shortly that it's been 20 years. Isaac finally decides that his wife's barrenness will require the Lord's intervention if it's going to be solved. took him 20 years, but give him credit. When the time came, he prayed. He did recognize that God had to be involved, so he appealed to God after 20 years. Now, his response is a far cry from the one that his father pursued, if you remember. When his father found himself in a similar situation, his solution was to listen to the voice of his wife, who encouraged him to go to a concubine, marry the concubine, and create a child on his own. Well, and... The text of Scripture has shown us the mistake of that. The result was Ishmael, who was now a son, who would produce a legacy of pain for Israel. Isaac, though, took the right approach. He appealed to the Lord. But it's more than just a lesson in the importance of prayer. I could spend the next 30 minutes on that. It would have been totally predictable because we can understand instinctively that was the right thing to do. And yes, Lord, I should probably choose that more often myself. Help me remember that. End of the lesson, right? The more important aspect of that fact is that it was in God's intention that the prayer take place and that explains why the woman was made barren to begin with, because we've already established it was not God's intention that she'd be barren forever. So he must have established her barrenness for a reason and that reason was fulfilled in Isaac's response. But even that begs a question, for what reason does God want Isaac to pray and therefore then lead to a child? For the same reason that God waited so long to give Abraham and Sarai a child. So that when the child does come, when the pregnancy does come, men will have to acknowledge it came by God's hand. I mean, every pregnancy, when you get down to it, comes by God's hand. There's no event that is outside his control. But when he goes out of his way to bring our attention to that fact, it is so that we will not mistake it for anything else. And in this case, just as with Isaac's own birth, God now wants his wife's first pregnancy to be clearly something God is at work in and through orchestrating. And the easiest way for him to do that is to turn off the tap, so to speak, until Isaac recognizes that God is at work here. And in praise for that release, God then says, in response to your prayer, now you will have children. Forevermore, we're sitting here talking about the fact that God made it happen. That was his purpose. Is God doing the same thing in our life sometimes and we're not willing to recognize it in that particular way of why God may be doing that? Why he may be prompting us into that relationship of prayer? Have there been things or desires or needs in your life, basic things even, that you have wanted that God seems to be withholding and... Have you stopped to consider that maybe the whole purpose in the withholding is so that one day as it may materialize in some form, you'll be better positioned to see it was from God and not just for the sake of giving him glory for it, though, that's enough if that's all it's for, but maybe so that we can grow in spiritual ways by understanding that relationship just by acknowledging it. I mean, you think about it from the context of what we're studying here. God has withheld something important to Isaac so that as Isaac appeals to him for it, the connection between what he received and God's purpose and will is more clearly seen. I can think of many times in my life in which I've seen people who have wanted something for the longest time. And in the long run, as they receive it, you can look back on their life and see the hand of God in the way he prepared them for the receiving But yet in their own heart, they had wanted it much earlier and would have chosen to have it earlier if they could have reached it earlier. But now as you see it in hindsight, you realize it would have been too soon. They wouldn't have been ready for that child. They wouldn't have been ready for that job. They wouldn't have been ready for that money. And God was wise to hold them back. I saw that in my own life just in the opportunities to teach. There were days early and very early in my walk as a Christian when I already knew I had a calling to teach, but I was woefully unprepared for that task and too immature to recognize my unpreparedness. And God was very good to encourage me and school me through various ways, but yet not let me have more opportunity than I knew how to handle. But at the moment, I was very frustrated at times about my lack of opportunity as I perceived it. It's just God being God, God being a good father, God knowing things we don't know. Here you see God holding back the opportunity for them to have a child early because his intent was so that as the child did arrive, as the pregnancy came about, we could be taught something through it and something very fundamental, as it turns out. In Genesis twenty-five twenty-two, we begin to see why it is that this pregnancy was delayed and why it is that it's so important we understand it comes from God. Verse 22, But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Well, here we have another petition before the Lord. As we examine her situation, Rebecca's situation here, I want you to give just a moment's thought before we look at the text I just read. Just give a moment's thought to the prospect that Isaac and Rebecca are to have twins. By the way, this is the first mention of twins in the Bible, though I'm not suggesting it's the first time anyone's had twins in history. Think about when Abraham went outside God's counsel And he had a child through Hagar. That extra child we now know was not the promised child, right? Ishmael was not God's intention for the one to receive the promise. And his arrival complicated life for Abraham and Sarah. And it will complicate Israel's life for centuries. So we have come to understand that Abraham's attempt to make his own child, so to speak, is a sin. And the consequences of that sin are long-lasting. So we also, whether we realize it or not, we've made an assumption in our head. And here's the assumption we've made. If Abraham had not taken that sinful step, then Ishmael would never have been born. And if Ishmael had never been born, there'd have been no question which child was to receive God's promises. It would have just gone to Isaac as we expected, and it all would have been nice and clean and neat, right? But now you have Isaac. Isaac hasn't sinned. Isaac hasn't gone outside God's counsel. Far from it. He prayed for God to help. But God brings twins. There's that complication again. Two. But now you can't trace it to a man's sin. Only one of these boys can carry the promise of God. Not both of them. Only one. And so the fact that they now have two children raises this fundamental question that you have to answer. You have to go wrestle with if you're really going to understand not only this chapter, but for the most part, the rest of Genesis. Why does God seem intent On creating this choice that forces a split. Wouldn't we have expected Rebecca and Isaac to just have one child? Now there's something bigger going on here. It's almost as if Abraham needed an Ishmael. And now Isaac needs two sons as well. For some greater purpose, some greater point God is at work in doing through his scripture. This is a theme here that's going to emerge now in Moses' narrative concerning God's choice. And the theme centers around the birthright, where the birthright goes, but the fact that it can only go to one, and yet there is always another. There's always another. In fact, look at how the text itself introduces us to them. They're struggling in the womb. That's an interesting concept right from the start. I know a lot of young families with younger boys, especially if they're really close in age, We'll expect a struggle, you know, but it usually doesn't start till after they come out of the womb. Here you see it right away in the womb. God has produced two sons here so that his choice will be clearly seen by the outcome of the lives of these people. No one could look at Abraham, Isaac, and later Jacob without recognizing the Lord's sovereignty and his right to choose where his birthright goes. And in the case of Abraham, Ishmael gave him that opportunity. But now in the case of Isaac, God produces his own, so to speak, so that this choice issue continues to live on through the successive generations. We're going to see it again in Jacob's case. Jacob's going to go and have a lot of sons, as you probably know. And when we look at all of those sons, we're going to see choices popping up everywhere in the way God's sovereignty works. But turning now back to the question that Rebecca asks as she encounters the situation, The children are struggling and she says, if it is so, why then am I this way? That's the English as we have it presented in my Bible. But in Hebrew, the question is a little more nuanced than that. What she asks is, what is this struggle about and why do I live? But consider what she's saying here. There's a struggle so striking, so out of keeping with what's normal going on in her body. She's asking, why is my womb alive? Not why am I living? It's not that. But living with activity. Why is my womb so active? Why is there such a great struggle? And then you notice where she brings her question to? She takes it to the Lord, just like her husband did. Just like Isaac did. Doesn't it make sense for her to go back to the Lord with this question? If her pregnancy is itself the product of a prayer from her husband. And it's encouraging, I guess, to see her going to the Lord as Isaac did. But again, I think that's to be expected from what we've seen so far. But God is at work to make sure his intervention is not lost in all of this, that the birth is something that came from God. And now the twins are a sovereign decision of God and that the petition that Rebecca puts in front of the Lord is opportunity for him to respond and give an answer. And look at the answer he gives in verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So he delivers a surprising answer given the culture. Each line of what he said here carries significance. Look at the first line. He says to her, I have placed two nations in your womb. What he's saying, of course, is each son is going to produce a nation out of his line. One will become the father who gives birth to the nation of Israel, that being Jacob, of course. The other will become the father of the Edomites. Esau will become the father of the Edomites. They settled in modern-day southern Jordan. Petra, that's the region we're talking about. So God has stated up front in that first line, I have a purpose for these two boys. It goes far beyond merely expanding your family into twins. I've already set forth a whole plan of nations that are coming from these two boys. And from that, she can conclude, God is already doing eternal work here. This is not merely for my family. Secondly, second line, he says these two people groups will be separated from your body. Now, don't get the sense here that he's saying they're going to be taken from your body. Birth is, by definition, separation from the body. That's not what God's saying. That's self-evident. What he's saying is they have been separated from each other at birth. That they have separated into their respective identities, separated into their respective futures right from birth. God wants to make clear in the second line that I'm not just saying they might have nations that come from them. I'm saying I've determined they will and I've determined who they'll be. Then in the third line, he says these nations will not have equal strength or equal prospects in the future. In fact, one of these nations is going to be much stronger than the other. And historically, looking at Israel and looking at Edom, There have been times when Israel was more powerful than the Edomites. And there's also been times when the opposite has been true historically. But God is saying here that Israel will dominate Edom in the end. Eternally speaking, will be stronger. And in fact, the Edomites have since gone extinct as a people group. They've just been assumed into the Arab peoples of the region. So we now know that Israel is already shown to be the stronger of the two. So what is God saying there? He's saying that this is an outcome to suit my purposes. This is not random. But finally, and most importantly, the last line, God sets forth a simple but profound stipulation, one that ensures that his role in all of this cannot be ignored. The older shall serve the younger. That phrase is a reference to the birthright. What he's just said is the birthright will skip over the older. And the birthright will end up in the lap of the younger. In normal cultural practice, the firstborn would always have received that birthright, the greater blessing. So in this case, there is no conceivable way that the younger is going to serve the older, except that something will have to transpire to bring that about. Because by nature, by default, the older will be the one in the charge. The younger will serve the older. But no, the Lord says, in this case, the older will serve the younger. What he's saying is, man's rules are going to be trumped by my choice in the lives of these two boys. No man would expect this outcome. No man would have predicted. Had you lived in the culture in this day and you had money to bet and you wanted to place a wager on what would happen with these two sons, it would have been a fool's bet to believe that the younger would end up on top. But remember what God is doing here. He's orchestrated the whole situation so that we know it's him at work. He made the pregnancy come only after it was clear he intervened. He brought twins in a situation that would have not expected twins. Now he's saying before they're born, here's my plan for those twins. And I'm even going to do this in such a way that when it does take place, you will not be able to excuse it away as simply the natural course of things. The only way you'll be able to interpret it is to say, God intervened to make this happen by his will. So taken in context, here's what he's saying concerning these sons. That there are two nations. They are to be separated from birth. That one will have greater power than the other. And I am choosing all of these things. I am making all of this so. I am willing to tell you about it in advance of the birth itself. So that God will rightly receive the credit for all of these outcomes. Let's say that God had chosen to make Jacob the oldest-born son. Let's say Jacob had been oldest, Esau had been younger. Now, Jacob would just still be the chosen child. But if God had done that, men would still be sitting around today simply discussing the natural order that Jacob received the preference he deserved. He rightly deserved it. Men had determined that's how it should be done. Then God's role in this would have been muddied. We could debate, for that matter, whether or not... It really required God at all because it would have been the natural course. So God flips that around intentionally and takes the least worthy of the two, culturally speaking, and assigns that child the blessings of the covenant and takes the one who had the natural right to expect it and sets him aside. And evermore, we now know from looking at that text that God is the God who makes such choices. This is a stark dichotomy, a choice of two. That's why the number two in Scripture has as its spiritual meaning sovereign choice or God's choice. Anytime you see the number two represented in Scripture, you're seeing a spiritual dimension of God's choice being communicated symbolically through that number. It's the natural child versus the child of promise, the child of flesh versus the child of grace. And God created both made his determination beforehand in the womb, set one above the other, communicated it in advance. And we now just have to accept that truth. Remember, in Abraham's case, God was at work to produce a choice between two children. But the problem for us in Abraham's story is we had that complicating factor of Abraham's sin. And that complicating factor would have given us an excuse to dismiss God's choice, wouldn't it? We could have said to ourselves all day long, well, of course Ishmael didn't get it. He was the product of sin. God wouldn't have done that. But Isaac was the child of promise. That's why God gave him the birthright. Now God gives us an example that prohibits us from coming to that conclusion. Paul gives us this same truth in that well-known commentary in Romans chapter 9 in which he lifts this very statement out from Genesis 25 and inserts it into a conversation concerning God's sovereignty. In the way he brings men into the faith of Christ. He says this in Romans 9, 8. He says, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul begins by speaking of the question, who are the children of God? Who are those who can rightly be called the children of God? Paul answers it by saying it is not someone who is a child of flesh, But it is a child created by the promise. Now, when he says flesh, he's speaking here about the natural man. Those who come into the world like we all do with the sin of Adam. That's not someone who's a child of God. Abraham and Hagar produced a child of flesh. It's a product of their sin and of their own endeavor through the flesh to produce a child. Every child ever born on earth, in a sense, is the child of flesh initially, if not forever. But Isaac, we're told, was a child made possible by the word of God, by God's promises. These, Paul says, are the children of God. What he means is not all of those who come by virtue of a promise in the same sense as Abraham gave birth to Isaac. There's only been one Abraham. There's only been one Isaac. There's only been one promise in that sense. But in the sense that they are chosen by God, made a child of God by faith, and brought into that promise that God gave Abraham. You know, the promises God gave Abraham extend to the delivering of a Messiah who by his appearance brought into being the new covenant, which is the way by which we come to be saved today. So we're being grafted in, Paul says, into those promises by faith. And that grafting in makes us a child of the same promise. So Paul says, who are those who are uh, the children of God? Those are of us who have come by faith into that covenant that God gave Abraham. And by that faith, we are grafted into those promises. It's as simple as that. And then Paul goes forward, though, to make an example of Who is deciding? Who is controlling when someone becomes that child of promise? Is it by whether we work hard enough? Is it by works? Is it by our will? Is it by who decides they want to be a part of that promise? Well, earlier in chapter nine of Romans, Paul says it is not by the man who runs or the man who wills, but by the God who has mercy. And now he uses examples out of the Old Testament, including this one of Rebecca, to illustrate this has always been the way God has worked. It's nothing new. Paul says, in the case of Isaac, the twins that were in Rebecca were in a state where neither could be said to have earned God's favor or, on the other hand, to have sinned and lost some opportunity. They were both at a state where neither of those statements had even come into being yet. They were prior to having been born. And yet... Paul says it was in that moment that God declared the older will serve the younger, that the older will not receive the blessing, but the younger will, that the older will remain a child of flesh and the younger will be made a child of the promise. These decisions, in other words, predate anything they could do or say or think or want. And there's no getting around that. I mean, try as some do, and obviously there's quite a bit of effort going on in places to do that. Paul himself, ironically, his point in raising this whole issue is to put aside those disputes, is to say, look, you can't argue against this. Before they did anything else, the decision was made. And then Paul gives us the answer why, or the purpose in it, I guess you could say, the purpose in it. He says, so that God's choice would stand, so that it would be clear this is by God's choice, not by works, but rather by him who calls. The reality of God's sovereignty in the lives of men, is a deep, it's an important truth. It's one that often requires a lifetime of Bible study. My own experience has told me that. It must be approached with great humility or you'll never accept it. That's another truth I've come to understand. But it is the testimony of Scripture, flatly. And you're going to see this truth with me over and over again in the course of our study because it's on virtually every page of Scripture and it's certainly a major theme of the book of Genesis. This isn't the last time God's going to make a choice concerning who will receive his promises. When we get to the story of Judah and his first children, Judah will have twins as well. And just to show you how far God goes to prevent men from substituting their will and choice over his... The birth process has this interesting moment in which the oldest son sticks his arm out of the womb for just a moment and the nursemaid ties a red ribbon around his arm because in that culture it was very important to note who the firstborn was because of the birthright. Well, she ties the ribbon on, expecting the rest of the baby to follow shortly thereafter, and guess what the baby does? Pulls his arm back in. Well, then who comes out first? The one without the ribbon. Even then, God says, you think you know who it is? Let me show you, it's not up to you. God makes this choice. If you feel led, if you feel interested in exploring a full study of this truth of God's sovereign choice of those who will become children of faith, and if that's something you feel inclined to pursue, I highly recommend the Roman study that I have available online. Not because it's the only place you could go to learn it, but it's one I know of that I think is done properly. I hope so anyway, and it's available. And I encourage you to take that study. I frankly think every Christian should make a lifelong study of God's sovereignty in this respect because it will fundamentally alter your understanding of Scripture for the better. In the meanwhile, let's wait till next week to see where these boys go next as they're born and watch as the prophecy God's spoken in their lives comes true. Go with me in prayer as we finish today. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the patience and for the attentiveness, as always, for your word. Nothing glorifies your name more than those who would give attention to it. I pray, Father, that our willingness to accept what the page of Scripture says will have no limits as well. That our hearts will be open to understand the truth of your sovereign choice in the lives of men. To acknowledge what is simple fact that you, Father, have made all things, hold all things together, are bringing all things to their appointed end and have designated the path that each man will walk the lives that each man will live, and that these things, Father, are all coming to an appointed end for your glory. Let us never let our pride and our, our self-importance cause us to misread Scripture and to consider ourselves equal to you in any respect. And I thank you, Father, that you have been so gracious as to call us into faith and bring us into the family of God and to appoint us to mercy. Not for any reason of our own, not for the works we've done, not for the things we merit, for we have nothing we offer and we have nothing we merit. But you've done it for some greater purpose that is all to your glory. And I pray, Father, you would continue to show us that purpose so that we would not take what you've done for us for granted and even perhaps see it as earned and deserved. But would recognize, Father, that we owe you a debt we cannot pay. But we have our lives, Father, to serve you. And we pray we would use it to, this, to its fullest. Thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church and for all the work that is done in ministry here. Let us continue to do that and do more as you give us opportunity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.